Here's another study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. So in Hosea chapter 11, and we went over this last week, and it's online if you want to listen to it if you weren't here, but Ephraim, also known as Israel, with Samaria as its capital. And the reason why I keep saying that is because as you read through these, some of these prophets, you'll hear either, either Ephraim or Israel or Samaria, and it's speaking about the same region, the ten northern tribes of, of Israel. Um, they're going into Assyrian captivity. Hosea is prophesying this. Um, Ephraim is apostate, and what that means is it's forsaken God. And yet, In chapter 11, and again, we went over this last week, verses 1 through 11, it just reveals God's incredible mercy to uh, the people there. Look at verse 8. It says, How can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I hand you over, Israel? And then he later on, he says, My heart churns within me. My sympathy is stirred. This is God of the Old Testament. Some people have this, this view of God of the Old Testament as he's this, this evil, hard, you know, just crushing kind of a person. And then you have Jesus, who's, who's you know, the loving, turn the other cheek. And, and what they don't understand is God of the Old Testament is Jesus. And the new, I mean, they're, they're the same. It's, it's God. And, and, and God of the New Testament is the same God of the Old Testament. God loves in the Old Testament. So we see a picture of his grace and his mercy here. Verse 9, he says, I will not execute the fierceness of my anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come with terror. Isn't it, isn't it a relief to know that we worship God and not a man? And that, that you know God doesn't treat us like a man would treat us, because men, they don't forget. Men, you know, they hold grudges. Men, men are vengeful. God's not that way. God's full of mercy and compassion. The Bible says he's long-suffering towards us. He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Well, we're picking it up here in verse 12 of Hosea 11. It says, Ephraim has encircled me with lies and the house of Israel with deceit, but Judah still walks with God, even with the Holy One who is faithful. Ephraim has been deceitful with God. Ephraim's been faking it. Ephraim's been a hypocrite, the people of Ephraim. But God still, in his mercy, promises not to abandon Ephraim. Now, they are going to go into captivity, but God has not forsaken them, and God's going to bring them back into the land. That's a promise that he's given his people, and we're even seeing that fulfilled in our generation with the nation of Israel's people, God's drawing the Jewish people back into the land. Well, here in verse um, uh, verse twelve, here it says Judah still walks with God. That's again referring to the southern two and a half tribes of Israel, and Jotham, who was the son of Uzziah, was probably on the throne at the time of this prophecy in chapter eleven. The reason why I say that is because Jotham was a very good king in Judah. And at that time, Judah still walked with God. But Jotham had a son by the name of Ahaz. And Ahaz was a very, very wicked king. He followed the traits and the activities and the idolatry of the northern kings, uh, of the, the kings of Israel. Um, and so the prophecy in chapter 12 that we're going to look at this morning, it probably occurred during the reign of Ahaz. Um, 
Uh, because in verse 2 now, we're going to also see that God's going to bring a charge against Judah as well. So in chapter 11, Judah was still walking with God. We get to chapter 12, and now God has an issue with Judah. And so, in other words, it seems like chapter 11 ends one prophecy and chapter 12 starts another one. So just, just, I probably shouldn't have stopped at verse 12 or verse 11 last week. I probably should have just finished it, but I didn't. So verse 12, uh, excuse me, chapter 12, verse 1. Ephraim feeds on the wind and pursues the east wind. He daily increases lies and desolation. Also, they make a covenant with the Assyrians, and oil is carried to Egypt. Now, the background for this chapter, uh, if you are taking notes, it can be found in 2 Kings chapter 17, verses 1 through 4. In there, Shalmaneser, the king of Assyria, had come against Israel. Now, Hoshea was the king of Israel at the time, and he became uh, Shalmaneser's or Shalman's. He became his vassal. He basically became subservient to the king of Assyria, and he paid tribute money every year. In other words, he paid a tax uh, to keep Assyria basically at bay. He was just like a, a servant king, you know, servant to this king of of Assyria. But then Hoshea broke his covenant with Assyria, and he went up to So, which is the name of the king of Egypt at the time, and he gave him evidently a gift of oil. And at that time, he stopped paying that tribute to the king of Assyria, to Shalmaneser, and he had hoped that Egypt was going to protect him from the Assyrians. Well, Shalmaneser found out about this, realized that uh, that king had stopped paying that tax, stopped paying that, and that had gone around and was kind of conspiring against him. He captured Hoshea and carried off all Israel into captivity. And so here in this verse it says, Ephraim feeds on the wind. In other words, what Hoshea did trying to arrange uh, the circumstances to avert God's judgment via the king of, of Assyria, you know, trying to get around what God was going to do, it didn't help him at all. It's like trying, and I haven't tried this before, but if you're real hungry, trying to gulp air to fill your belly, you know, it's just, it's not going to do anything. I, I've never tried that. Maybe that's a new diet I should come up with, just the air diet. Um, but, it, you know, it's, it's like it's useless. It's not going to do anything. Um, and Ephraim, he says, pursues the east wind. Now, what he's referring to is there is a violent wind that used to blow in off the hot desert sands of Arabia, and they were very damaging winds. And so the picture here is that not only were the things that Hoshea pursued with these two kings not productive, but uh, by breaking covenant with Assyria, you know, in hopes of getting protection from Egypt, not only did it turn out to be not productive, but like the damaging east winds, it was very detrimental for Hoshea and actually for the rest of his subjects, for the people of, of uh, Ephraim. So verse 2, it says, The Lord also brings a charge against Judah and will punish Jacob according to his ways. According to his deeds, he will recompense him. Now, Hosea, in verses 2 through 6, now turns his attention to Judah. And it's very interesting and it's very significant that he mentions Judah and he goes back to, uh, and he names the name of Jacob. He goes all the way back to the man Jacob. In Hosea 12, verse 3, it says, He took his brother by the heel in the womb, and in his strength he struggled with God. 
This is referring to the man, Jacob. That can be found in the book of Genesis chapter 25. Now, Jacob had parents. Most kids have parents. Jacob had parents. His father was Isaac, and his mother was Rebekah. And when they were first married, Rebekah was barren. She couldn't have any children. And so Isaac, the Bible said, pleaded with the Lord for children. And the Lord listened to him and allowed Rebekah to conceive, not only to conceive a baby, but she conceived twins. And uh, Rebekah apparently had a very rough pregnancy. And uh, those of you that are mothers, maybe you've, you've experienced that. You know what a rough pregnancy is all about. But it says in Genesis 25 that the children struggled together within her. And Rebecca said, hey, if, if all's well, why am I feeling this way? So it was very uncomfortable for her. And the Lord gave her an answer. The Lord said, two nations are in your womb. Two people shall be separated from your body. One people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. It was a prophecy regarding uh, Rebecca's two children. Well, Rebecca gave birth to twins. The first to be born was red and hairy, and they named him Esau, and the name means hairy. I don't know about you, but it's like that would just make sense. Hey, there's a hairy baby. Let's call him Harry. Aren't you thankful that your parents didn't name you what you looked like when you came out of the womb? Can you imagine that? Hi, my name's Wrinkled, or I'm Squished, or my name is Conehead. <laughs> you know, my mom had a difficult pregnancy. I'm the youngest of four children, and, and for most of my pregnancy, I was born with the umbilical cord around most of my pregnancy, most of her pregnancy. <laughs> I almost watched coffee come through her nose. Um, for most of her pregnancy, my umbilical cord apparently was wrapped around my neck. And so I was, it was a pretty serious situation. She had to lay flat on her back for most of the pregnancy um, for me. And uh, any, anyways, if you look at my baby pictures and the pictures when I was a little kid, my facial features, it must, I must have just laid on my face all the time because it was just, when I grew up, I had a nickname in school. They called me Flat Face. <laughs> so <laughs> it was very, de- you know, I've been damaged since that, but... But, you know, so, so, okay, Esau's born. Here's a hairy baby. Let's call him Harry. Um, anyways, the second baby, the second twin was born. And as it was born, it grabbed a hold of Esau's heel. And so they said, hey, let's name him Jacob. And Jacob means heel catcher, not only because he physically grabbed the heel of uh, of his older twin Esau, but it was symbolic too, because what the name uh, Esau or heel catcher, mean, or excuse me, Jacob or heel catcher means, the name means, is supplanter. And that word supplanter, it means to take the place of another as through force, through scheming, through strategy or the like. And you know, it's interesting, Jacob lived up to his reputation. He lived up to his name. Uh, he, was, he had a reputation as a smooth talker and a manipulator. I'm not going to have you raise your hands, but think about this. How many of you know manipulators? Maybe you are a manipulator here today. Well, you know the type of person. They talk and they manipulate people into doing things for them so that they can get what they want. If you've ever read the story of Tom Sawyer and Huck Finn, 
Remember Tom Sawyer? He was given chores to do on a Saturday to whitewash a fence. And his buddy Huck Finn comes up and wants to go fishing. And Tom Sawyer convinces Huck Finn that whitewashing a fence on a Saturday morning is much more fun than fishing. And as a result of his manipulating, Huck Finn goes, hey, can I do that? <laughs> and he starts painting, you know. And you guys, if you've ever read the story, you know the situation there. Um, you know, the more successful manipulators are at it, the more they do it. And some people, they kind of grow up. It's, a, it's kind of a learned behavior. And they get to the point where that's their way of going through life. They will manipulate their way through life. They will make things work out by their own cleverness, by their own strength. They just make things happen. And a person who has that kind of personality, that, that learned behavior, um, they don't really, you know, a person like that doesn't really need the Lord that much. Because why? Why would you need to rely on the Lord? Because I make it happen myself. And so um, it's very hard for people like that to be dependent on the Lord because they're the ones, they make things happen. Well, that was the type of person Jacob, the heel catcher, had become. He manipulated, and if you read the story, it's in Genesis 27. He manipulated his brother Esau into giving him his birthright. You guys know that story. He, with the help of his mother Rebecca, she wasn't totally innocent either, uh, he tricked his father Isaac into giving him the blessing of the firstborn instead of his brother who was born before him. That's in Genesis 27. When Esau discovered that Jacob had tricked him out of that blessing of the firstborn, um, he vowed to kill Jacob later. He said, you know, my dad, we're, I'm going to mourn my dad's death when he dies, but after that, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kill my brother. And Rebekah found out about that, and she told Jacob, go flee to Haran. Uh, that was where she was from, and to go stay with her brother Laban, for a, the Bible says, for a few days until his anger subsides. He ended up being there for 14 years. Well, Jacob did. He listened to his mother. And he went to Haran, and there at Laban's house, he met and fell in love with Laban's youngest daughter named Rachel. But the thing is, Jacob the manipulator, he met his match in the manipulator of his uncle, because his uncle was a manipulator as skilled as Jacob was. And he convinced Jacob to work seven years for him in exchange for being allowed to marry uh, Rachel at the end of those seven years. And so Jacob did. And the Bible, you know, you know, love it. Love is blind. You know, you do things crazy when you're in love. The Bible says those seven years were like a day. I mean, he was just, he was in love, you know, so it didn't matter to him. So he worked for seven years. And at the end of seven years, when it became time to marry Rachel, well, Laban, who was also a conniver, a manipulator, he tricked Jacob, much like Jacob had tricked Isaac, and Laban switched daughters. You know, I won't go into the details with that, but he switched daughters, basically. And uh, Jacob found out to his horror that on their wedding night, he realized he had married uh, Leah, Rachel's older sister, instead of Rachel. They did, they did the switcheroo there. And uh, so he confronted Laban about it. And Laban said, hey, it's not customary to marry off the younger daughter before the older daughter. So why don't you work another seven years, and then I'll let you marry Rachel as well. So he did. He manipulated Jacob into working another seven years in exchange for being allowed to marry Rachel. And so he did that. And uh, again, it was like another day for him because he was just, you know, in love. Well, at the end of those seven years, he also married Rachel. So for 14 plus years, though, during that time, 
God had blessed Jacob. Jacob was taking care of Laban's flocks. And uh, God was blessing Jacob to the point that Laban's flocks were decreasing and Jacob's flocks were increasing. And it got to the point where Jacob started not feeling very comfortable being there at Laban's, at Laban's house there. He was starting, it was like he's wore out his welcome there. And so he felt that it was time to take his family, his two children, or excuse me, his two wives and his children that, he had, that they had bore to him. And it was time to go back to his homeland, to Canaan. And uh, in Genesis 31, you could read about it. There was some family drama. You know, there's always family drama, isn't there? Well, there was family drama with Laban. And uh, anyways, Jacob finally set out for Canaan with two wives, Rachel and Leah. He had 11 sons and one daughter at the time. All his servants, all his herds of livestock. And you might be thinking right now, if you're a student of the Bible, you're probably thinking, wait a minute. Jacob had 12 sons. You just said 11. Well, Benjamin was born on the journey, on the way as, after he left. Well, in Genesis 32, and that's, um, that's a long way to get down to where the application, but here, Genesis 32, Jacob sends a message to Esau that he's coming back into the land, and he asks that he would find favor in Esau's eyes. And you know what he finds out? His servants come back and go, hey, yeah, Esau's coming to meet you with 400 men. And so Jacob's like, oh, oh boy. And he remembers that vow that, that Esau made. I'm, I'm going to kill my brother. And so the welcome wagon, 400 men and Esau coming to meet him on the way. And so that sounded pretty ominous to Jacob. So the manipulator in Jacob comes out once more. And he cannot, comes up with this scheme. And so what he does, and he's got lots of herds. He's got lots of servants. He breaks up his herds of livestock into groups and servants into groups. And he has one group at a time going and he separates some space between them. And he tells the groups, he goes, okay, the first group you get to, when you, when you, when you confront Esau, say, welcome, you know, I'm, I'm Jacob's servants. And these are a present from my master Jacob to you. Uh, and so then he would give him some cattle or whatever the animals were. They were different animals that he gave. And so each group was to do that. And then when Esau was to ask about it, they would say, well, Jacob's coming behind us. And then he did that for successive groups. Each group would do that. They'd give gifts to Esau and say, well, Jacob's right behind us. And so continue on. And uh, Jacob and his wives and his children were in the last groups of people. And, you know, if you kind of think about it, that was kind of smart, I think. Jacob's plan was to smooth over things with Esau by giving gift after gift after gift. Finally, you know, Esau go, hey, Jacob must, he seems like a pretty nice guy now, you know. And so it would, it would save him, basically. Um, well, that night, After the groups of servants and animals had headed out before him, Jacob sent his wives and his children and his female servants across the Jabbok River. And so he was by himself this one particular night. And in Genesis 32, verse 24, it says, Then Jacob was left all alone, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of day. Now when he saw that he did not prevail against him, he touched the socket of his hip, and the socket of Jacob's hip was out of joint as he wrestled with him. And he said, Let me go, for the day breaks. But he said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So he said to him, What's your name? He said, Jacob. 
He said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have struggled with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked, saying, tell me your name, I pray. And he said, why is it that you ask about my name? And he blessed them there. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, for he said, I have seen God face to face and my life is preserved. Just as he crossed over Penuel, the sun rose on him and he limped on his hip. So that's the background that that Hosea is referring to. Jacob was a conniver. He was a fighter. He was a manipulator. He was a man who got himself out of jams by his own wits and his own understanding. And again, a person like that doesn't feel like he needs to depend on the Lord. They just struggle. They don't give up. They connive until they get their way. And so Jacob, he's encountering this man, or the Bible says this angel, and it turns out to be none other than the Lord himself. And he's wrestling with him, and he doesn't give up all night. He doesn't surrender. And as the dawn is breaking, the Lord touches Jacob's hip and cripples him. And, uh, and, and then when you read the account in Genesis that we just read, it says that Jacob prevails in the wrestling match with the Lord. And the Lord says, hey, let me go. And Jacob says, not until you bless me. It's interesting when you read it that way. But when you get into Hosea here, you get a little bit of a different picture here, a little bit of a deeper glimpse into what's happening. In verse 3 of chapter 12, it tells us Jacob in his strength, in his strength, he struggled with God. That was throughout the night. He was struggling with God. He was not giving up. He was wrestling. He was going to make things happen. But in verse 4, it says, Yes, he struggled with the angel and prevailed. He wept and sought favor from him. So what happened is as the dawn is breaking there, Jacob he had not given in. He'd not ceased wrestling. And the Lord cripples Jacob there. And it's at this point Jacob finally gives up. And now he's now a broken man. And he's weeping. You don't catch that in Genesis in that chapter, but in Hosea it says he wept. He's weeping. And Jacob basically is weeping and he says to God, um, I will not let you go unless you bless me. In other words, he's, he's clinging to the Lord. And he says, don't let go of me. Don't leave until you bless me. He's crying out to God. A broken, defeated man clinging to the Lord and he's probably in intense pain at this point. Begging the Lord not to leave him until he bless him. And at that point, the Lord says, hey, what's your name? Now, God knows his name. God knows each one of our names. The Bible says he knew us when we were in the womb. I mean, he knows, he knows Jacob. What he wanted was he wanted Jacob to confess who he was, what kind of person he was. Hey, I'm Jacob. I'm the heel catcher. Man, I'm the manipulator. I'm the person who tries to do things on my own. And God tells him, you're no longer Jacob, but Israel. That word Israel means governed by God. Means ruled by God. You see, that night, Jacob was searching. He was yearning for a blessing, and he received that blessing. You know what it was? It was a new nature. He went from being independent, a man of you know, a man who could take care of himself and do all this stuff, to someone who was fully dependent upon the Lord, who could, who was at the end of himself. I, I can't do anything. I need you, Lord. That's the real blessing. That transformation. And Israel, because we call him Israel now, was Jacob. He left that place with a limp the rest of his life. 
And that was a reminder to him, hey, you're, you're dependent on the Lord. You're no, longer, you're no longer Jacob the strong guy. Now you're dependent upon God. You know, sometimes that's the only way God can get people's attention. It's to bring them to the end of themselves. Bring a person to a point where they can no longer manipulate. They can no longer scheme. They, they've, they've outmaneuvered. They're, they've ran out of maneuvers. There's no place that they can go. And all they can do now is to finally just cease striving, to cease living independent from the Lord and just crying out to Him. And God sometimes does that. When we're so stubborn, we refuse to just surrender to Him. God will allow us to get broken. That's what He did with Jacob. The rest of verse 4, it says, He found him in Bethel, and there he spoke to us. That is, the Lord of Lord God of hosts, the Lord is his memorable name, Bethel. That was the place Jacob spent the night at. You know, when he first left for Haran, 14 plus years earlier, he went through Bethel. It's in Genesis chapter 28 as he was fleeing from Esau. And he dreamt there. He grabbed a rock and used it for a, for a pillow. And he fell asleep there at that place. And he dreamed about this ladder that, that came down from heaven to earth. And there was angels ascending and descending. And the Lord was standing above it. And, he, and, he, and its former name, that place was Luz in the Old Testament. But Jacob renamed it to Bethel. And Bethel means house of God. You see, because that's the place where the Lord revealed himself to Jacob. That was the same place that God had revealed himself to his grandfather, Abraham, years before. Now, Bethel, if you know the geography of, of, of Israel, it's about 10 miles south of Shiloh. Now, I haven't been to Bethel, but I've been to Shiloh before. Shiloh it was Israel's capital for about 300 years during the times of the judges of Israel. And it's where the tabernacle sat for 300 years. And uh, only being 10 miles away from Bethel, I think the, the landscape probably doesn't change that much. You know what it's like there? It's just there's some hills and lots of rocks. I mean, there's a little bit of grass here and there, but it's just, it's like you couldn't plant farms there. I mean, it's just rocks everywhere. That's the place where the Lord met Jacob. That's where he revealed himself to Jacob at first. Do you have a Bethel in your life? You know, I have a Bethel. My Bethel is actually on a freeway. <laughs> Believe it or not, it's the first rest stop on I-90 as you enter into Minnesota from South Dakota. Because that's the place where the Lord met me. That's the place where I finally surrendered my life to the Lord, where I finally said, that's it, I'm stopping doing my own thing. I'm going to stop living my life independent from you, Lord. I'm surrendering my life to you. That's my Bethel. And you know what? It's just a rest stop. I mean, there's a couple picnic benches and some garbage cans there. That's it. Probably a few oil spots. Bethel for Jacob, it was just this rocky place. There was nothing to speak of. This morning, this place could be your Bethel. You look at this place and go, you know what? It's by church standards. This isn't anything fancy. I mean, I don't, I've always wanted a pulpit that comes out of the floor. You know, I could be standing there with a fancy suit and big hair, and I get big hair sometimes if I let it grow. But, you know, just coming up, they're like, hey, I'm Pastor Don. You know, just the music and the, you know, the smoky, you know, the, the fog and all that stuff. And here comes Pastor Don. You know, we could really make it an emotional thing here. Um, you know, make it really stupendous. But that's not this place. This is pretty simple. But you know what? This could be the place where God meets you, too. 
This could be your Bethel here this morning. I have a Bethel. I drive by it every time I go to South Dakota, and I, I look for it. I go, that's the place. That was a place my life changed. I remember it. So where's your Bethel? So you're probably wondering, man, he really went off track here with this whole story. Well, Hosea gave this illustration of, the Jake, of Jacob to Judah and probably to Ephraim too. I think it applies to both of them. But why? Because they're acting according to the old nature of Jacob. They're self-willed. They're independent. They're relying on their own strengths instead of that new nature of Israel, means governed by God. They were governing themselves. And so now Hosea gives them the application of the illustration here in verse 6. He says, So you, by the help of your God, return, observe mercy and justice, and wait on your God continually. Hey, that, that was Jacob, and you're living just like Jacob, but now, you know what? You can turn. You can return. You can have a Bethel moment right here now, too. And he gives them that opportunity to surrender their lives to God once more. And now, verses 7 and 8, I think he's referring to Ephraim again in particular. He says there in verse 7, a cunning Canaanite. Some of your Bibles might say merchant, but he's, in my version, a cunning Canaanite, New King James. It says, uh, instead of calling them Israel, he calls them this cunning Canaanite. Why? Because they're living life according to their old nature before they became a nation governed by God. You know what Canaan means? It means merchant or trafficker. And again, they were wheeling and dealing, trying to manipulate these countries around them, Egypt and Assyria, to protect them from God's impending judgment. They're trying to do things in their own strength. Verse 7 continues, Deceitful scales are in his hand. He loves to oppress. And Ephraim said, Surely I have become rich. I have found wealth for myself in all my labors. They shall find in me no iniquity that is sin. Look at that, those verses. I have become rich. I have found wealth for myself in all my labors. They shall find in me no iniquity that is sin. You know what that language is? That's the language of self-will. I, me, my. It's a person who's living their life independent from God. And he says, they shall find in me no iniquity that is sin. You know, Proverbs 20 verse 6 says, most men will proclaim each his own goodness. But who can find a faithful man? You know, I never see the sin in myself. I can see your sins pretty good. I mean, it's pretty, but I don't see my sin. You know, that's the way we view each other, don't we? We usually think, hey, I'm not that bad. After all, you know, yeah, I said that to my wife. I, you know, I, but I didn't mean it. This is what I meant. And this is why, I, you know, we can always excuse what we, what we say. But if she says something bad to me, that's sinner. She needs to repent, you know. It's interesting. Ty's here visiting with us from Las Vegas. And um, I met who used to be the pastor, the founding pastor of Calvary Chapel, uh, Spring Valley, right? Spring Valley in Las Vegas. His name was Pastor John Michaels. He's passed away. He's gone to be with the Lord. But one time he was out here in, in Minnesota, actually in Wisconsin, and I was talking to him. And I said, man, it must be a rough ministry for you there in Sin City. You know what he said to me? He goes, you know, I think I have it a lot easier in Sin City than you have it here in the Midwest. Why? Well, because he said, you know, in Sin City, Sin City after all, it's not too hard to convince people they're sinners. After all, that's why they're there, right? <laughs> the, the people that visit. Um, you know, <laughs> it's not too hard to 
to especially when in people end up you know gambling away their life savings or they you know whatever happens to them and they're down to nothing it's not too hard to convince a person they're a sinner there but here in the midwest man everybody's good you know uh, you know everybody they're they're good hard working moral people they're americans after all right around here people go to church whether they're saved or not. We, we, they go to church. It's a cultural thing. Most people around here were baptized as infants. Most people around here were confirmed as teens. So why do they need a Savior? They're not sinners. They're, they're good people. It's hard to minister here in the Midwest. Ephraim compared themselves to the heathen nations, nations around them, and they said, hey, we're not as bad as those people. But, you know, that's not how God viewed them. Just like the church in Laodicea in the book of Revelation, God says, no, no, uh uh-uh. You're blind, you're naked, you're miserable, you're poor, you're wretched. Verse 9. But I am the Lord your God ever since the land of Egypt, and I will again make you dwell in tents as in the days of the appointed feast. The appointed feast that they're talking about is uh, where they dwell in tents. It's a Jewish festival today known as Sukkot. I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right. But it's the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles. And what that feast is, it's, it's a time of commemoration where they remember the time that Israel wandered in the wilderness when they dwelled in tents before they came to the promised land. It's just to remind them. And God here is saying, I'm going to bring you back to that place where you're strangers in the land, where you can no longer be self-sufficient, but learn to rely on me once more. Because that's what the wilderness was for the children of Israel. It was an intense time for them. It was a tough time, but God wanted them to learn to rely on them. God wanted them to learn, hey, you know, everything comes from me. You look to me for your needs. I want to be your God. I'm governing you. And God says, hey, I'm going to do this to you once more. You're so self-willed. You're so stubborn. But I'm taking you into the, I'm going to take you into a place where you're going to learn to become dependent upon me once more. Verse 10. I have also spoken by the prophets and have multiplied visions. I have given symbols through the witness of the prophets. You know, God would not be accused of being harsh or unfair because for generations and generations God had raised up prophets among the people there to warn them you're 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 walking away from the Lord repent turn back to the Lord generation after generation after generation God had warned them to turn back verse 11 Though Gilead has idols, surely they are vanity. Though they sacrifice bulls and Gilgal, indeed their altars shall be heaps in the furrows of the field. Their idols, the things that they worshipped in place of the Lord God, pretty soon they're going to realize that it was vanity, that it was empty and useless, and those idols would be destroyed. Boy, what a good thing for you and I to find out ahead of the game. You know, that, that thing that I'm following instead of the Lord, it's, it's vanity. It's, it's useless. It's not going to get me anywhere. But usually people don't realize it until God takes it away from them. Then they go, oh, wow. Verse 12. Jacob, again, he's referring to Jacob again, the man. Jacob fled to the country of Syria. Israel served for a spouse, and for a wife he tended sheep. Now, Jacob there fled Esau and went to Haran. And Haran was in Syria, by the way. And there he served, in actuality, 14 hard years for the wife that he originally wanted. Now think about this. 
God had blessed his grandfather, Abraham. Abraham became a very, very wealthy man there in the land of Canaan. And that wealth was passed on to his son, Isaac. Now you think back when Jacob stole the blessing of the birthright, the firstborn, that's a double portion of the inheritance. So Jacob was standing in line to receive a double portion of that wealth that was passed down through two generations. God had blessed Abraham. God had blessed Isaac. And Jacob there fled Canaan. He had all this potential, but he fled Canaan with nothing but the clothes on his back. He had nothing. And he had to work as one of his fa- just like one of his father's servants would have had to, tending sheep. Now, if you know Jacob, Jacob says, the, the Bible says that Jacob, he grew up, he kind of liked hanging out in the tents. His brother Esau, Harry, you know, he liked going hunting. And, and so he was a man's man. You know, he's out there getting his hands dirty. Jacob liked to keep his hands clean. I, I would imagine if they had television back then, he probably liked watching the Galloping Gourmet with his mom. Do you ever remember Galloping Gourmet? Some of you guys are too young for that. I grew up watching Galloping Gourmet with my mom. I remember that. Come home from school, and there he was, Graham Kerr or whatever the guy's name was, and uh, Julia Childs, you know. But he, he's, he's a stay, he was a mommy's boy. You know? I'm not saying I was a mommy's boy. But, <laughs> but he liked, he just liked, he preferred not to get his hands dirty. That was Jacob. God took him into that other land. Now he's a shepherd, just like the servants. Now he's getting his hands dirty and, and doing just what he didn't want to do. He left Canaan a fugitive with nothing. And not only that, but he, was, he who was a cheater himself is working for his harsh uncle who was a worse cheater than him. He left Canaan a fugitive with nothing, but he returned blessed and wealthy. But not only that, but God gave him a new nature. When he came back, man, he was a different person. He was transformed. He was now governed by God. He was Israel. He was no longer Jacob. The prideful northern kingdom of Israel would also leave the land with nothing. They're going to be humbled in Assyria. They're going to be ill-treated. The Assyrians were brutal. They were vicious people. Verse 13, By a prophet the Lord brought Israel out of Egypt, and by a prophet he was preserved. Now this prophet he's referring to is Moses. Moses was the one, the prophet God raised up, who led the children of Israel out of bondage in Egypt. And it says here, by a prophet, he was preserved. Again, referring to Moses. You know what that's referring to? When Moses was receiving the Ten Commandments from God on on Mount Sinai, God says, hey, Moses, you better get off the mountain. Your people have made themselves a golden calf. Your people are worshiping idols. And, 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 And Moses goes, my people, they're your people, God. And God says, no, they're your people. They're not my people anymore. And, and God says, hey, Moses, stand back. I'm going to wipe them out, and I'm going to make a nation out of you. Can you imagine if God had fallen, fallen through with that? It would have been the, the Mosesites, or, you know, the land of Moses or whatever. Well, God had been working in, and that's, by the way, if you're taking notes, that's Exodus 32. But God was working in Moses during that, during that whole process. And Moses fell down on his knees and he interceded for the people of Israel. He says, God, don't, don't do this to your people. God, you brought them out of the land of Egypt. You've given them a name. All the countries around fear you because they know that the children of Israel, they're nothing. But Lord God, you've done a work through them. Don't abandon your people. And Moses was interceding for his people. 
through a prophet, they were preserved. God transformed Moses' heart so that Moses had the heart of God, merciful, compassionate. Because I think God was just getting Moses to that point where Moses was, his heart was changing. And then later on, as they're coming into the promised land, Moses, before he dies, he tells the children of Israel, he says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your midst, from your brethren. Him you shall hear. And he's referring to Jesus Christ. Verse 14, Ephraim provoked him to anger most bitterly. Therefore, his Lord will leave the guilt of his bloodshed upon him and return his approach, reproach upon him. Israel had an opportunity, Ephraim had an opportunity to cease struggling, to cease trying to work things out on their own, to stop being self-willed and independent, but they didn't. And so God was going to allow them to go into captivity to be conquered by the Assyrians. That's the whole lesson behind chapter 12. You know, you can live your life trying to do things on your own, trying to be a man's man, you know, self-willed. I I can make things happen on my own. Uh, But God wants you to surrender your life to him. God wants you to give up trying to do things on your own and to just humbly come before him and say, God, I'm nothing without you. I can't do it. God says, that's where I want you to be. I don't like being in a place of vulnerability. You know, I don't, I don't like where I get to a point where it's like, man, I, I can't do anything. I can't change my circumstance. But you know what? That's the best place to be. Because that's the place where we go, Lord God, I can't do it any longer. I need you. And God says, that's, you're right where I want you. Okay. You had that opportunity this morning. I want to give you that opportunity. So why don't you stand up and let's go to the Lord in prayer. And I want to give you an opportunity. I'm going to pray with each one of us this morning. I'm not going to have anybody come forward right now. But I want to pray for you. And if the Lord speak into your heart, I just pray that you would do business with the Lord this morning, that this would be your Bethel this morning. But let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for your word. Father, I pray for each and every person here this morning. Lord, we've all struggled. We've all tried to do things on our own. Lord, we... We admit to you that we are like Jacob, Lord. We are manipulators, Lord. We have uh, tried to be self-willed, Lord. We've, we've been independent from you this morning, Lord. Lord, we surrender ourselves to you this morning. Lord, we pray that, Father, that we would be people that are governed by you, ruled by you, Lord. We're tired of ruling ourselves. Lord, we're making a mess of our lives. And, Father, we need you this morning. Lord, I pray for each and every person here this morning. I pray especially for those, Lord, that maybe have never surrendered their heart to you this morning. Lord, maybe they've never had that moment where you've revealed yourself to them. Lord, I pray that this moment, that this place would be their Bethel. Lord God, would they would recognize that, Lord, you've been there all along as we were singing in our worship song this morning, Lord, that, that Lord, we've been, we've been searching, but you've been there all along, Lord. And that, Lord, this morning that you've revealed yourself to them. And, Father, that they might cease from striving and that they might surrender to you, Lord, that they might admit who they are, sinners in need of a Savior. And, Father, we thank you that your word says that if we confess our sins, that you're faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This morning, Lord, we confess our sin to you. We ask that you would forgive us. Lord, we ask that you would come into our hearts and be our Lord and our Savior this morning. And Lord, some of us have made that commitment years ago, but we've wandered from you. We've strayed. 
Lord, we've, we've gotten back into our old nature. And Lord, this morning, we just humbly come before you. We ask, Lord God, that you would once more forgive us and that you would once more transform us, Lord. And we thank you that your mercies are new every morning, Lord God. And so we love you and we praise you this morning. We thank you for your word. Lord, I thank you for these people. I pray your blessing upon them now. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.